But I want every fundraiser to be empowered by data because I think it can serve as a roadmap. It can serve as an enhancer. It can serve as a instinct verifier. Most importantly, it can serve as a prioritizer because if you're trying to do everything, you're going to do nothing. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Najid Kassam. Najid has spent 30 years working in and around the nonprofit sector and is proud to work every day to build stronger communities. Currently, Najid is the CEO and founder of Kila, an impact technology company dedicated to empowering nonprofits with powerful software. Today, we are talking all about data, data hygiene, AI, and every other favorite tech term inside this sector. That was a little sarcasm if you couldn't tell. Actually, what we're talking primarily about are the hurdles that nonprofits face understanding and utilizing their tech. The first hurdle is the tendency to bury our heads in the sand. Prone to perfectionism, many of us in the nonprofit world are afraid that our data isn't pristine enough and our numbers are not impressive enough. The truth is, says Najid, things are seldom as bad as we fear and we are always better positioned for success when we actually look at the numbers. So if you're feeling fearful of all things data-driven, this episode is your point of entry. So let's dive in so you can meet Najid. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be joined today by Najid Kassam. Najid, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thanks, Mallory. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to get to know you better. I have heard about you from so many people over the last two years. and Mostly lies, I hope. <laughs> Mostly lies, <laughs> Mostly wonderful thing about all of your different contributions to this space. So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about your journey to this sector, to the work that you're doing today, just to give everyone a sense for what brings you to our conversation. Sure. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. Uh, your reputation precedes you, but unlike me in a good way. So that's great. Not the troublemaker. I think I have a reputation for being, which I'm proud of, by the way. So it's funny. Today is a very emotional day for me. And I'll tell you why in a second, but it's directly related to why I spend so much of my heart and soul and time in this space. During the pandemic, my my grandmother passed away from COVID. Okay. And I didn't get to come. And I actually, I'm calling from the UK where my family's from. And I got to actually go to the cemetery for the first time today. And it was, I didn't expect to cry. And I did, which, you know, you know, you, you think about the legacy of our grandparents and the people who came before us. And actually, my involvement, my dedication, my lifelong commitment to this space, and I mean by this space, I'm the nonprofit sector and civil society, really comes from that. My my family is from South Asia. We left South Asia because of this turmoil and moved to East Africa different times. But And then as many of you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, people who looked like me, South Asians, were either persecuted, expelled... There's the threat of persecution. My grandfather's assets were, ta- were taken from him. And so my mom and dad left Tanzania. Both They didn't know each other. They just happened to both be from there. At the age of, I don't know, I think my dad was 11 and my mom was nine and my mom was one of those 10, essentially. And they got to the UK, a few miles from where I literally sit today, and were able to, to do so well in their lives, like they're dentists, they're wonderful, boring people, but they were able to get here because of scholarships, because of the support of our religious community, but what we would call civil society. And I'm sitting here 
in their hometown in a circumstance they could have never imagined because of our sector. And so my mom and dad, you know, they moved to Canada because they broke up and my dad moved. He was heartbroken. It doesn't matter. They, they got back together, but they moved to Canada for no other reason than it was just a normal immigration reasons. But and when we were, I was just a, a year or two, I think three years before I was born. And they taught us, there's four boys, big family in our family. There's two really important things. Get the best education you can and never forget to give back to your community. And so my relationship, my volunteering, my engagement in the nonprofit sector started when I was three. It's been 33 plus years now. I'm, I'm 36. It's been since I was a little kid. And I've had the privilege of serving our communities as a fundraiser, as an executive director, as a door-to-door volunteer, as a board member, as a charity lawyer, now as whatever the hell I am now, thought singer. I don't want to call it leader, but thinker. How about thinker? I'm going to go with thinker. And I attribute it to my grandparents and my great-grandparents and the struggles they went through and the blessings that the sector gave to us. And so when I was doing corporate law as a litigator at Toronto, the opportunity to kind of give my full time and attention to the space through technology came about. I think I just jumped with two feet and I'd already been in the space for 25 years. So it wasn't like it was something new to me, but it was, it was a new adventure and one that I'm really grateful for. Just before you ask your next question, I think what's most interesting is because I've seen the space from so many different vantage points from the beneficiary of the services through my family, how that affected them to, like I said, as a fundraiser and then as a board member at all. I come to the space without the biases and the myopic view of only being a fundraiser, only being a program manager. I think that's what is very interesting to me that because I've been able to be 10,000 feet and not always in the weeds on everything, but I've also been in the weeds. I hope that my perspective and the mentors and the incredible people I surround myself with who are much smarter than me help me to serve the sector. And my wife and I have a, have a deal. We're very privileged in our lives. We have to do eight hours of service each a week, every single week on top of our full-time jobs. And we hope to teach that to our kids and our grandkids. And so my, you asked a very simple question, how did I get here? It's generational, but it's also existential. Does that make any sense? You know, what's really amazing is just how many actual similarities I think you and I hold family history wise and culturally, although we're from different cultures, but my family is Eastern European Jewish survivors came to the US ultimately after many displacements were served by a community center, like were recipients of um, social services that absolutely saved their life, built their life. And so I was raised with very with those two same things, education and give back, and have been volunteering since I was probably five. Um, exactly. <laughs> so I really resonate with your story. And I agree, I think, um, for me too, I've never thought about it until you said it that way. But the many perspectives through which I view both the need and the work allows me to have some more perspective when things can get very tunnel vision-y because we're in that hustle. So uh, yes, everything you said makes sense. It resonates. We're both young parents. Our kids are young. And I think what really sits top of mind for my wife and I, but especially me, because this is my day job as well. It's not only my service work, but it's my day job. Is that like they're inheriting a world that the values that we're building, the civil society that we 
are strengthening. And in my graduate school, research was in the importance of civil society and democracy. So like this family story wasn't just about like academically, I pursued it before law school. And so how can we teach these same values that our grandparents taught you and I to our children who do not have the same perspective and vantage point? And how can they one-up us and better us and bring new ideas and thoughts to, to our sector? And so that's kind of thing and exciting and a little bit scary, I think. Yeah, I feel that too. So I'm curious, it's interesting, you and I come to this space with so much similarity and yet what contributions to this are different because you have yes, a skill set that I do not have. I don't really um, have a skill set, but anyway, <laughs> like I true. pretend to have a skill set. It's interesting. And I've started to recognize my own limiting beliefs about to data and numbers and years of being told I wasn't good at math and the way that sort of impacted my adoption of different technologies mm-hmm. and services throughout my entire career. But but you come at the challenges in front of us with such an interesting and important vantage point around data science and data. So talk mm-hmm. to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I want to clarify something. I'm an aspiring technologist. I'm not a coder. I'm not an engineer. I'm a student of technology and I'm really a student of data. And I think I still write with a fountain pen on my desk every day. Like I'm an old man and I'm a lawyer. So like there's levels of my old schoolness in, in that way. Folks aside, we heard for starting in 2000 and then in, after 2008, power of technology to transform industries. We saw it in cars that now drive themselves or operate with batteries. We saw it in logistics. We saw it in retail. We saw it in like, security and identity. We see it in banking where more banking is done on our phones than in the banks now. Right? And so it wasn't a moment, but rather a series of moments where I thought to myself, I, I, I'm a fundraiser at heart. That's kind of what I've done for so long. And we were doing things the same freaking way, Mallory. The same way that we've really done since the 1920s. It used to be at our mosque or our church or our synagogue. Then it was at United Way. But we ask people for money because we know them or we care about them or we are connected to them. Still, the vast majority of money comes in checks and cash and wire transfers. We are doing the same thing we've done for literally 100 years. And and again, it wasn't like a eureka moment, but I did have one eureka moment, which I'll tell you about in a second. But I was like, what about if we thought about technology not as something we have to do, but something that empowers us to do better, to change the way we work? Beth Cantor wrote a book about how everyone in the nonprofit space is overworked and stressed out, which is true. I think that data and technology, but especially data can actually help to alleviate that. It can make us better at decision-making. It can give us a set of tools in our toolbox that is different from the the compassion-driven instincts that we all have. And with that kind of perspective, I sought out to say like, okay, so now what? Okay, that sounds great and romantic. And it started with a lot of twists and turns and mistakes. And what I realized is, most people don't like the CRMs they use. Most people don't like the data. They don't understand how to harness their data. So we kind of there. We started with like, let's build something that people actually like to use. I'm not going to say any names of, of any other softwares, or, but there's a lot of frustration. I'm going to go on the record and say there's like borderline anger. Like you can't be angry. It's not healthy. It's not healthy anyway, but especially at the thing that's supposed to make you better. And so that's kind of started. And then I did have a eureka moment about the use of kind of data itself. It's like, even in our donor databases, our Excel sheets, our papers and pens, there's so much there that we're not using. 
We're just not. And it's not a fault thing. It's a time thing. It's a lack of education thing. It's a scary thing. It's a fear thing. And so it's like having all this opportunity and just like leaving it on the side of the road and saying, oh, just do drive the way I have, even though like maybe the map is telling me like go a different direction. And so started CRM with Kila, but then as it kind of was like, let's make every fundraiser a data-driven fundraiser. Every single fundraiser. I don't care if you're 75 years old and you have trouble turning on your iPhone. You can still be empowered by data. Of course, there's the young millennials and Gen Zs up with technology. I get that. But I want every fundraiser to be empowered by data because I think it can serve as a roadmap. It can serve as an enhancer. It can serve as a instinct verifier. Most importantly, it can serve as a prioritizer. Because if you're trying to do everything, you're going to do nothing. And data can help you guide in that. And that's what gets me so excited. And everybody else in the world is doing it. So why should 10% of the US workforce that's in the nonprofit sector use it every day? So that's kind of came to it. There was a eureka moment I'll tell you about. Somebody on my team was like, can we buy a sales tool that's powered by AI? And I was like grumpy because they wanted to spend money. I said, and then they explained and I finally agreed. I was, I keep a notepad in my shower. This is true. I actually have a notepad in my shower, waterproof. It's like a scuba diving or something notepad. And I remember writing down, we should use AI for fundraising. And this was like a few years ago. And it came to me like, it's great to make data more accessible. It's great to make it more reportable. It's great to make everyone be able to use it. But like, what about the next thing? Now we've got all this data. Like, what do we do with it? And so the great power of machine learning and artificial intelligence is it can look at these giant sets of patterns and build these algorithms that are getting better every day or every week and actually help to say, here are some things you could do. Now, what it isn't, Mallory, is a silver bullet. It isn't saying like, yeah, he's going to take over a fundraiser's job and change everything. No, it simply sees things that we can't see, tens, hundreds of thousands of different data points and says, this is what is likely to happen, or this is what has propensity to happen. Now go use your fundraiser instincts and actually do your job. And so that's why I'm so excited about the use of data and fundraising. Wow. There's so much that you said in there that I want to double click on. But one of the things I'm particularly interested in your perspective around is that piece around fear of data. Talk a lot about fear on here. And a lot of my work is around reducing resistance around certain fundraising actions. And when I think about one of the fears or one of the emotional components of data, that is how we talk to ourselves when we see it. So there's like, mm-hmm. the, I don't know what it means or how to use it. And like, why don't people often want to weigh themselves, right? It's not because the number on the scale is anything. It's because when you see that number, you start saying really mean things to yourself and you start to get filled with fear and discomfort. And what's happening in your head is the reason why the data Mm -hmm. on the scale is problematic, not because that number is problematic. And I have noticed too with fundraising data that especially because, you know, there's like fundraisers feel scared until December 31st and then on January 1st and then January 1st they have to start all over and they're like wait what and so which is why they're all burnt out that's the reality like it's and if we don't hit our goals it's not like some capitalist doesn't get a dividend it's like somebody's life isn't impacted the way it could be and that's exhausting 
Exactly. And so I'm curious how you think about how we can reduce the fear that people might experience when they're seeing their data throughout the year without dealing with that discomfort of our goals and how does this data help us do that? So there's a couple of different kinds of fears. It's a really good question, Mallory. The first one is like, firstly, you say you're scared of data and people think they're scared of data and they don't want to see that but they actually use it every day. And I'm going to talk about ketchup, Mm. if you believe it or not, for a second, okay? Your kids like to eat ketchup. Thankfully, mine doesn't yet, but soon, I'm sure. You look in the fridge and you see the ketchup on it. It's like, it's three quarters full. It's half full. It's a quarter full. Looking at that, that is data. It's data that informs whether you should buy ketchup or not when you go to the supermarket tomorrow. Mm. When you look at the laundry bin and you're like, it's pretty full, but probably not full enough to fill a full load. And I want... That's data. I know it sounds ridiculous, but like we use data every single day of our lives. It's like, oh, do I need two onions for that recipe or three onions? Always three onions, by the way, for the record. Let the you know the pod know that it's always three onions. You're using data. You're taking information that is quantitative and helping it to drive your decision-making process. That's not scary. It's like not algorithms and hype pot newses and it's not just about x and y and z and all the formulas quantity even quant data is just stuff we use every our battery is 74 percent full then it's 20 percent full on our phone we think do i need to plug it in can i let should i that's using data to define our decisions and if we start to think of fundraising data in that light it's actually a little bit less scary so that's the first part And whether you're 90 or you're nine, you're using data. That's the thing. I love that. The second thing is, if you can't measure it, you can't make it better. And this is where I'm going to push a little bit on the sector. If you're scared of your scale, then you've got to look at yourself and say, why am I that scale? What can I do better? What am I doing every day to make myself a little bit scared? Being scared and being satisfied are not the same thing. When you look at your data and you see your goal or your trend line or the percentage of donors that are recurring relative to the benchmark of of the rest of the sector, it should actually motivate you, good or bad. If you're below the benchmark or you're below your goal, Najid, let me go to my team. What can we do? What ideas can we brainstorm? How do we make this better? How do we make that stress a little less? Because if I start planning for it in August, not November, it's going to make my life easier. If I'm ahead of it, great. What am I doing? What can I double down on? Like it's this, and so I think it'll take some, I think, I don't think, I know it takes some of the franticness out of it. Mm -hmm. But what's really cool is with things like machine learning, you can say like, what is probably going to happen? And then how do I make it better? So if it's like, if Mallory has a high probability of becoming a recurring donor, flip and phone her like it's not like oh let's see if the algorithm's right no pick up the damn phone and call her and be like yo mallory you've given twice this year i think you'd make a great monthly donor data is going to help you make best your destiny in fundraising and so to me yeah it can be scary it can be overwhelming but if you're using the right tools with the right mindset I actually think it makes it less scary because you know what's more scary? Getting to December 13th and being like, we're $11 million off of our goal and somebody's head is going to roll and I don't want it to be mine. And I don't want it to be the kids who benefit from our services. And so, so that's one kind of fear bucket. The second one is that my data sucks. And guess what? It probably does. 
but it probably doesn't suck as much as you think. And it's actually fixable. So some really common things like what data is missing? Where have people been lazy to record it in your database? Where, what the format of the data? And instead of being like, oh, it's terrible. I'm never going to get it right. Actually, you know what? The investment of spending two hours a week for the next three months to make this one thing better is going to make a material difference to how I use my data. So commit to it. It doesn't have to be fait accompli, like throw the white towel up, I'm giving up. Take small pieces about it. And you know, the cool things about one of our data tool fundraising kit, which sits on top of all these CRMs, it's not just for our CRM, is that um, it'll tell you what's complete and where things are missing, and then you can get to work. So to me, it's like when you get scared about the incompleteness or the messiness, it's not like something you can't fix. And if you commit to that, the value goes back to the first one. It will empower you to do good things or great things, I think. And I think as a sector, we need to have a bit of a mindset shift to be more comfortable with that because it's impossible that it'll get worse. And I think that's what is exciting to me because ultimately like fundraisers are underappreciated and overworked. If I can make their lives easier and make the product of their work better, by using something they already have. To me, that's pretty exciting. And it's certainly noble to, to spend my time doing. I have so much good advice in there for fundraisers. And you know, I want to ask you one more question before we have to hop off. But think about data perfection. Uh, we talk about data hygiene. And I feel like yep. in our sector, we don't really have a idea of good enough. And so a lot of fundraisers wanting to wait till they have perfect data to consider it clean data to even do things as simple as personalize an email to their list, right? They're worried that they're going to call someone Charles instead of Chuck. And that's not about the data like set being, it's just like the it is always imperfect. Right? And so I'm curious, how do you all think about the threshold users need to take action? Because that piece that you said is so important is like the AI indicates who's most prepared for a prompt, not who's going to take a behavior without being prompted. No, absolutely. And so all of it comes back to fundraiser action. It's like that is all, is informative based on the belief that fundraisers are going to take actions. And use their brains. Happen. Fundraisers are yeah. smart people. Like, yeah. it's, the thing is like, you're never going to replace compassion. You're never going to replace intuition. You're never going to re replace relationships. Like, try to. That's yeah. not going to be successful. If you look at a list and you're like, I don't know if the AI got this one right. That's okay. It's an algorithm. It's not some human behind a computer doing this and thinking about it. Like, But to go back to your question, I'm going to say two things, and they might sound a bit contradictory, but I'll say them. You've got to be clean enough that, that you can trust it. So it's like, I like to think of 80, 20, 90, 10 as the rules. Things like amounts and dates and addresses. Those are the things that are the most important. Mm. If you can get those three things right, you're probably going to get it right most of the time, predictions. So I think that likes the threshold or the way that I think about it. Mm. Like about the very basic things that are required to think about these predictions and, or this mail merge or whatever it is. Like think about that. The second thing is, and this is the hard one for a lot of people to stomach, it's okay to screw up a little bit. If you call me Najid and instead of Mr. Kassam or whatever you want to call it, like I'm probably going to give to your organization. But if you don't ask me for the right amount, I'm much more likely to not give the amount that I could have got. So it's a risk reward thing. If you're, ch 
if you're chasing perfection, you're going to fail no matter what you do. Nobody is perfect. Nothing is perfect. Maybe with your $10 million major gift, you your email 52 times. I get it. I've done it. I totally press undo six times on Gmail when you send it. Because <laughs> I got that like, that's me. my life. I, to- I totally get it. But like when you're doing a mail merge, when you're sending something out, when you're looking at a list, if somebody accidentally gets a Chicago thing instead of a Minneapolis thing, guess what? It probably doesn't matter. But the time you saved, the specificity of the campaign, the correct ask because the AIs help smart ask, those things are going to way outweigh the like few times we as fundraisers stumble because our data isn't clean enough. My dad used to tell me a story. There was this, it's a stupid story, but it's so very relevant. There's this dog walking home with a bone in his mouth. And I'm like, oh God. And then he sees his reflection in a puddle or a, a lake and he wants the second bone. And so he opens his mouth to try to get the second bone and loses his first bone. Sometimes I think as fundraisers, we're a little bit like that that dog trying to get, you're never going to get everything. It's not with data. It's not possible. It's just too much of it. The average organization with like 25,000 donors has like a million data points. Think about that. They're not all going to be perfect, but don't be the dog because you might only be able to get one bone, but if you are okay to make some mistakes, you're going to get a lot of bones and a lot of opportunity. And that excites me and that's a paradigm shift that's sometimes a battle with, with the people. Yeah, it, it's really good advice for folks. And I think, look, I'm sure you've dealt with this. I've dealt with this. That one angry person who sends you the mean email back because you've got something about them wrong. And those are outlier situations. Likely, they're also not people that we're probably going to give to you anyway. I think our people have a lot of grace. And I've certainly made a fair share of mistakes or had the data be oh so have I like everyone has yeah and they are totally survivable and like you said ultimately the the action that we took incredibly beneficial so I think that's just such good advice it's not complicated it goes back to fear it's the thing it's like we're scared but like if we can't and I think this is what I'll leave and I've learned this the hard way we've got to be okay trying new things making mistakes stumbling a little because if you're able to measure it to kind of to your mm-hmm. success, it'll actually move you towards that goal for December 31st a little bit faster or a little bit more abundantly, even though it's going to be a little bit more bumpy on the road. And that's what I want our sector to get. I love that advice. Okay, yes, let's end there. And I will include links below for folks to connect with you. Thank you so much. Um, no, thank you, today. Mallory. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, this conversation was so fun and there are so many takeaways. Here's what I'm thinking about right now. Number one, AI can harness data and identify important patterns, but it can't replace the work of human fundraisers. Number two, reducing fear around what data reveals about fundraising practices starts with reducing the amount of beating ourselves up that we do. Number three, are you feeling resistant to metrics? Just remember, numbers are your friends because if you can't measure it, you can't make it better. Number four, there will be misses. AI and data is imperfect, but the overall net positive that comes from doing our best to keep up with data collection constitutes a significant ROI. Number five, the average nonprofit organization harvests hundreds of thousands of valuable data points. And even if they are imperfect, that's okay. It's a process of refinement and it is still incredibly valuable. 
Okay, there are so many more takeaways and tips inside this episode. So head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Najid and Kila and fundraising kit. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.